we see here the power of both religious and political forces working alongside of hell to destroy Jesus and get rid of him. And I want you to understand this morning that the same attempts happen today. The great unifier, which is the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul says unifies Jews and Gentiles who hate one another. The gospel, the great unifier, is also the great divider. Jesus is the great divider. He divides good from evil, true from false. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark and continue our our study in this, this wonderfully rich Gospel that the Spirit of God has provided for us through the pinning of Mark, and obviously he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 12, and the passage that we want to look at this morning is verses 13 through 17. The title of the message, God over Caesar. God over Caesar. And I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word, picking up in verse 13, reading through verse 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him, that is, trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Thus ends the reading of God's authoritative word. Please be seated as we bow to him in prayer. Father, we pray now as we come to this hour of the study of your word that you would guide our study, guide our study by your blessed Holy Spirit. Give us encouragement through your word, in particular because of the times that we live in. Help us to understand our duty, our supreme duty, to our supreme and only King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Use this text to teach us and encourage us in these ways for the sake of your people, for the sake of your kingdom, and under your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was um, Oliver Cromwell that said on one occasion, Christ, not man, is king. Christ, not man, is king. That is, if you are a Christian this morning, a very difficult statement to argue against. The Bible is crystal clear that the absolute sovereign rule of Christ over all things is firmly set. The absolute sovereign rule of Christ of all things is presupposed even in such things as the Great Commission, 
given by Christ to the church when he prefaces the Great Commission with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The absolute sovereign rule of Christ is also predicted in Psalm chapter 2. If you turn with me for a moment over to Psalm chapter 2, a wonderfully precious psalm. And here it is predicted in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to my Lord, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth to you as your possession. The absolute sovereign rule of Christ over all things is presupposed, it is predicted, and it's also proclaimed. Just flip with me to Psalm chapter 24, since you're already in the Psalms, and we obviously use this as our call to worship. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And what does verse 8 say? Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. The absolute sovereign rule of Christ, presupposed in the Great Commission, predicted in Psalm 2, proclaimed in Psalm 24, and proposed to us even in places like James 2.1, where our Lord is described simply as the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. A very interesting title, because that was a title in the first century reserved for heralded ancient kings and emperors who believed themselves to be representations and indeed manifestations of God in their own day. And James 2.1 says, No, there is only one Lord. The Lord of glory is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. Psalm 2 is clear, going back to Psalm chapter 2, it is clear that all pretenders to authority will be judged. All pretenders to absolute power and authority over God's authority will not only be judged, but they will be mocked. Psalm 2 says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Because as verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. And God says, You do that. And I will mock you. I will laugh at you. And there are many examples in the Bible where this occurred. This is exactly what happened to Herod, Herod, the king of the Jews. You remember after he dressed himself in shiny silver garments that reflected the sun. And he sat on a throne. He was judged by God. Acts chapter 12. The angel of the Lord struck him down. He did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. Seeking to give glory to himself, he was judged summarily. So it is clear that the imperial and authoritative claims of Christ in Scripture are irrefutable to any honest reader of Scripture. This led R.J. Rushdoony to say, in his book entitled Christianity in the State, and I quote, The ascendancy of the King of Glory, Jesus Christ, to all pretended kings of glory is most obvious. To suggest that Christ's realm should be controlled or licensed by pretenders is absurd and blasphemous. But the modern state, through many symbols, claims to be the bearer of true glory, just like Herod. 
The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. It is thus the duty of the modern state to let him in and to submit to him, not to control him. Which is to say that Scripture unequivocally teaches that all spheres of human authority, whether the family, whether the church, or whether the state, have been established by God and therefore have been derived from God so that they are subjected to God at all times in history and all places of the world in subjection to the absolute sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Romans 13.1 is clear. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And yet people today are confused. And the confusion is heightened because they are presented with a false dilemma. Either return to a Rome-like structure where the power of the ecclesiastical officers are an authority over the magistrate or over the civil realm. Or give in to the notion that we just need to accept the fact we're in a post-Christian era of secularization that says let the state make its own rules and the church is their own rules and even defer to the state if the state tries to make rules over the church. That is an unbiblical notion. And that's really a false dilemma. It is not either or. There is another option. Abraham Kuyper says that both the church and the state are to blame for this confusion. He says it is certainly not only the heroes of the state that restricted the rightful position of the church. There were just as many attempts on the part of the church to extend its power beyond legitimate boundaries. The old battle between pope and emperor continued after the Reformation, albeit in a different form. And Kuyper is exactly right. In the 16th century, we saw the battle between the church and the state continued to be played out, but now you had three players. You had the papacy, the state, and now the reformers who came in. And although we love the reformers and we respect the reformers and we call ourselves reformers, the reality is that the Roman Catholic Church, under the authority of the Pope, lost its control of both the church and the state. And in turn, the Roman Catholic Church in many ways became subject to state-sponsored Protestant magistrates. Protestant churches began insisting on having authority over the church. Joe Boot writes in his book, Ruler of the Kings, and I quote, the subjection of the church to the state proved just as problematic for the church and society in general as the subjection of the state to the church had done. Despite the Reformation, which broke emphatically with Rome, different Protestant churches sought to have themselves established as the official church of a given state or realm. This arrangement where the state assumes an effective leadership over the church is called Caesaropapism, a merging together of the church and state in an authoritative demonstration. Now, eventually, Protestants won the day, and many of the documents that were written, there are clauses that protect the state from authoritative intervention by the church or vice versa, but with this caveat that the church always has a rightful duty to rebuke the state, especially in matters of public morality and religious liberty. In other words, as Christians, we believe that what the Bible teaches flowing from the Protestant Reformation heritage is that the state does not have free reign. The state, the government, is not the final authority, even in terms of earthly matters. 
But that's not the day we live in. Through the influence of people like John Locke, who helped promote a sort of rationalistic principle regarding government, saying that government could be formed and government could operate according to a neutrality free from religion, free from the Bible and rooted in man's reason. And though Locke himself was not purposely developing a secular view of the government, it was radical thinkers that came after him who have used his principles to emphasize human reason instead of divine revelation and God's moral law. The result of which says that the government has the right to supplant moral law. Moral law doesn't apply to governing authorities and nations. Government is merely a creation of the people, a contract between people independent of God's authority and subservient to human reason. This has led to the radical separation of church and state and the destructive notion that the government, not God, is an authority unto itself or even worse, the notion that God doesn't exist or especially that if he does exist, he is a threat. He's a threat to our liberties due to a strict morality, and therefore Christians need to be silenced. I say all that to say because our present passage is very applicable regarding our circumstances today. Because the religious authorities of Israel and the political authorities of Rome had the same issue. They were threatened by the absolute sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christ was executed. They were threatened by his authority. So we've seen as we've gone through Mark's gospel, a delegation sent by the religious authorities of Israel from the Sanhedrin confronting Jesus in the temple. And now we're going to see three more groups sent to Jesus with a rapid succession of questions, all rooted in that first question, by what authority do you do these things? We're going to see that the Pharisees and the Herodians come to question Jesus about taxes this morning. Then in the weeks to come, we see the second group, the Sadducees, questioning Jesus about the resurrection. And then a third group, the scribes, questioning Jesus about which is the greatest commandment. All three of these groups coming from the Sanhedrin, all three of these groups coordinated by the Sanhedrin to trap Jesus. And all of the stories conclude by Mark's summary of the problem of the religious leaders in verse 38. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues. They have the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The religious authorities of, leader, uh, the religious authorities of Israel were judged by God. And then as we move into chapter 13, in keeping with the fulfillment of Christ's authority to judge the tenants of God's vineyard, as we saw last week, we see the Son of Man as the Son of Judgment, judging Israel, beginning with the leaders themselves. Because instead of bowing to Jesus as the Lord of glory, the religious leaders viewed him as a threat to their religion, a threat to their traditions especially a threat to their authority and their influence. And they end up colliding into an evil coalition with the Romans for the same thing. The Romans were threatened by the authority of Jesus. 
This is an amazing turn of events. If you've not been with us, we're looking at the last week of our Lord's life. And on Sunday, we saw his triumphal injury, entry. Sunday of the last week of his life, Jesus comes in riding on a colt with the cries of Hosanna. But by Friday of that same week, the same crowds are crying, crucify him, crucify him. By Friday, the religious authorities have successfully turned Rome against Jesus because both Rome and the religious authorities over Israel saw him as a threat. Jesus has crafted this parable of the vineyard. We saw it last week where he says that the religious leaders of Israel were bad tenants of the vineyard. They have now left humiliated out of his presence as we saw there in chapter 12. They left because they feared the people. But they go back to the drawing board to set three traps up to trick Jesus. We see here the power of both religious and political forces working alongside of hell to destroy Jesus and get rid of him. And I want you to understand this morning that the same attempts happen today. The great unifier, which is the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul says unifies Jews and Gentiles who hate one another. The gospel, the great unifier, is also the great divider. Jesus is the great divider. He divides good from evil, true from false. And here we see that even the religious leaders of Israel were no different than the Romans. The Pharisees working together with the Herodians because they saw Jesus as a threat. A threat to spiritual and political authority, working against Christ. And even in our own day, sometimes religious leaders will work with political leaders against the church. That is really the history of the church, is this battle. And those sorts of things are even occurring in our own day. But as Psalm 2 says, the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. He scorns any pretender to authority because he is the only authority. And as we look at this episode this morning, just a few verses, verses 13 through 17, where we see this question posed to Jesus regarding taxes, we learn that neither Jesus nor the church should be intimidated by religious or political authority. He alone is king. We shall not, we will not be intimidated by any authority that seeks to seize the true authority that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a study in the importance of the word of God, isn't it? This is a study in the importance of how important Jesus is in your own life. Whether or not you're truly in submission to him, the final king. Now as we look at this passage, there are really just four points that will guide our study. And I want you to notice with me, first of all, just in verse 13, what I want to call the detailed plan. The detailed plan. Notice your Bibles in verse 13. Mark continues and he says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. That is Jesus in his talk. The they at the beginning of verse 13 refers to the Sanhedrin. They are the ones that are coordinating this effort. They are the ones that formulate the question that is eventually um, proposed to Jesus in verse 14. 
They are the ones who sent the delegation in chapter 12. They are the high ruling officials of Israel. And notice verse 13 says, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Apostolusin is the word for sent, from which we get the word apostle. It means a sent one on a mission, a sent one with a commission. These men who questioned Jesus were the evil apostles of the Sanhedrin, the sent ones on a specific mission, as verse 13 is clear there, to trap Jesus. And this delegation was composed of some of the Pharisees, as verse 13 says, and some of the Herodians. You're familiar with the Pharisees. We really don't need to describe who they are in detail. But you might not be familiar with the Herodians. The Herodians were a Jewish party of influence, a Jewish party of high standing um, within Roman society. They were favorable to, to the Greek and sometimes pagan customs. They were favorable to Roman laws, even over Jewish law. They were strongly supported by the government. And they strongly supported the rule of the Herodian dynasty. The Herodian dynasty were essentially puppet kings. They were the supposed kings of the Jews. They really weren't even kings. They were really just governors of certain districts and regions. But these Herods, who were not blood Jews, ruled the Jews, the Herodian dynasty. They were bobbleheads. They were yes-men to uh, the, the Roman emperor. And therefore, ethnic Jews resented them. Ethnic Jews hated the Herodians, market, especially the Pharisees. And yet we see that the Pharisees collide in an evil coalition with the Herodians. Why? Because of their joint hatred of Jesus. And if the political world makes for strange bedfellows and alliances, so too the religious world. There are times that the political come together with the religious to persecute true Christians. These are Christian compromisers with the politicians for money or for fame or for a place of authority. And here is what is happening in Jesus' day. The Pharisees and the Herodians, these two groups with animosity toward one another, these two groups at odds with one another collide. As one person said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These enemies aligned for one wicked purpose described there in verse 13 you want to know what their detailed plan was it's no hidden secret the end of verse 13 they are trying to trap jesus in his talk literally in his logo in his logos in his words in his speech what he says with his mouth they want to trap him literally they want to take by hunting that's the word trap a grusosin it's only usage in the New Testament is found here. It speaks of a, of a hunter trying to trap an animal in a snare or a fisherman trying to catch a fish by a hook. These evil apostles of the Sanhedrin are like hunters using their skills in a deceitful manner in order to trap Jesus. But this isn't a game. Tag, you're it. They've been going back and forth and they're not seeking merely to catch Jesus and release him. They're seeking to catch Jesus and kill him, trap him in his words. They want him to make radical political statements that give the idea that he is against Rome. 
that he's a radical revolutionary. This is their detailed plan. The detailed plan was laid out in the secret meetings of the Sanhedrin. It was hatched under cover. But these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, these evil men, these relentless men were the ones hand-selected to do the dirty work. And so they go and confront Jesus. Two unlikely enemies coming together. The Pharisees, religious devotees. The Herodians, political devotees. The Pharisees, radical advocates of God's biblical law. The Herodians of Roman law. The Pharisees, the theological and spiritual elite. The Herodians, the political and secular elite. The Pharisees, the conservatives. conservatives the Herodians, the liberals. The Pharisees committed to Israel as an independent nation, her customs, her history, her past, the Herodians to Rome's custom, her past, her future, her history. The Pharisees at least said they were committed to God, radically so. The Herodians openly said they were more committed to Caesar, more loyal to Herod Antipas, the governor of Perea and Galilee. So this is the strategy of the Sanhedrin. They um, are unable, the Pharisees being a chief member of the Sanhedrin, to convince Rome of the threat of Jesus merely based upon their theological quibbles with him. What do the Herodians care about theology? What do the Herodians care about Jewish law? Well, the Sanhedrin understand this, and so they say, the only way we are going to get Rome against Jesus is to get the Herodians on our side. We will appeal to their patriotic and political sensibilities by trying to set Jesus up as a political insurrectionist, a threat against Rome. And if Jesus made even what appeared to be comments publicly that were that of a radical nature against the government, they would frame him. Now, it's important to understand that as early as Mark 3, 6, that the Pharisees and the Herodians were beginning to form some sort of alliance. In fact, those early days, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, we know that things are already going in that direction because Luke records for us an interesting verse. He says that um, they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They had been planning this for some time. And now with Jesus making all of these authoritative claims, this was their opportunity. You know, I just want to say this. There are two types of power in this world that bind people together. The power of love and the power of hatred. The power of love is the glue of the gospel. That's the church's glue. Jesus says, by your love for one another, they will know that you are my disciples. But hate is the devil's glue. And it's sort of like that glue you get at the dollar store. It doesn't work. Unity based on hatred always falls apart. It's naturally destructive and divisive. And I say that because... There are radical ideologies circulating in our own day. Like CRT and intersectionality. Ideologies rooted in hate. Ideologies rooted in victimhood. Opposed to the gospel. 
They are glued together with the hate of Satan, and they will eventually fall apart. They are unsustainable. You don't need to fear that. You need to proclaim the gospel and understand there is one king. Just as they tried to get rid of Jesus, and of course they did execute him, but he rose again from the dead, so too Jesus will put to death all of his enemies, including radical ideologies. He has risen from the grave. He has all but defeated all of his enemies, and no trap by Satan can ultimately take away Christ's authority. No matter how detailed it may be, no matter how much the high political officials may be involved, and no matter how aspects and parts of the church and religious leaders may be involved in these radical ideologies, they cannot win in the end. And we learn that from this passage. This is the detailed plan. But that takes us, number two, to the deceptive pandering. The beginning of verse 14. Notice your Bibles. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. This is deceptive pandering. This is nothing but flattery. What they said was true, but they didn't believe what they said. These are words of truth from hearts of lies. Deceptive pandering. Trying to trap Jesus by stroking his ego, by getting him to relax and to let his guard down. I mean, what they said was true. Teacher, we know that you are true. That was true. Jesus was truth incarnate. But it's too bad they didn't believe what they said. In fact, they were fools to think that Jesus could be fooled, especially if it was true, as they affirmed, that he didn't care about anyone's opinion. If Jesus didn't care about anyone's opinion, why does he care about their opinion, that he's a person of truth? He doesn't need their opinion. Uh, sponsorship of him and why would they think that they could deceptively stroke his ego by pandering him to try to trap him into a slip of the tongue insurrectionist comment it's not going to happen teacher we know that you are true we know that you are true this is flattery and feign respect he was a teacher and what he taught was true because he was true but this is just flattery. Jesus was a teacher of truth, and even they admit this, not because they're affirming it in their hearts, but because they know that everyone else sees the integrity of Jesus. He is a teacher of truth. He is a teacher of truth, a teacher, in fact, of power. Back in Mark 1, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He was a teacher of power. He was a teacher of priority. Teaching was the emphasis of his ministry, and he would not allow anything to get in the way of that. He said in, in chapter 1, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons, the the apostles are trying to press Jesus and press his schedule with all these distractions. And Jesus says, no, I came to be a preacher. That's what I need to do. He was a teacher of power, a teacher of priority. Teaching was his priority. He was also a teacher of principle. He taught the Bible, not the opinions of others. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Herodians confirm. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
In fact, of course he didn't care about anyone's opinion because he only listened to his father. John 3.34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus uttered the very words of God. He wasn't an authority unto himself. He submitted to the Father. John 8, 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. The Father taught the Son what to say. The Son went to the seminary of the Father and spoke forth His truth. John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus was a teacher of power, a teacher of priority, a teacher of principle. He was also a teacher of precision. You remember what He said to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, how He went through all of the Scriptures to explain to them how the Christ must suffer, but that He would rise again. He taught in detail the Scriptures, going all the way back to the Old Testament, showing how all the Scriptures in the Old Testament pointed to Him. He was a teacher of truth, a teacher of power, a teacher of priority, a teacher of principle, a teacher of precision, and also a teacher of practice. He practiced what He preached. Teacher, we know that you are true. And then you truly teach, as verse 14 says, the way of God. That was Jesus. But this is feigned humility. This is nothing but flattery. This is deceptive pandering. Calling him teacher, but not respecting his teaching. Calling him truth, but not believing the truth of what he said. Deceptive pandering. And even cults and false preachers and false professors can speak respectful about Jesus. People do it all the time in the Southern culture about how much they love Jesus. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, many can profess his name. That's all this is. Don't fall for it. What they said is true. They didn't believe it. It's deceptive pandering. And in fact, I can prove it to you because all the way back in chapter three, they said that what Jesus said and what Jesus did, he did in the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. They thought he was on the wrong side, not the right side. And when they said to him in verse 14, you do not care about man's opinion. What they're saying is that he only spoke God's word. He only spoke God's truth and he taught it correctly. In Luke's parallel account, Luke says that they said, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Or as verse 14 says, you truly teach the way of God. In other words, when Jesus preached and Jesus taught, he operated according to principle, not popularity. Conviction, not convenience. And even if it wasn't trendy or outright popular, Jesus nevertheless spoke the truth. He even went to the extreme of what they said in verse 14, which is true. Notice your Bibles. They say, for you are not swayed by appearances. You know what that literally means? It literally means you do not look at the face of man. When Jesus preached and taught, he was not looking down to man for approval. He was looking up to God for approval. He received his praise from God, not man. And it mattered not who his audience was. Jesus would not change the message. 
he could be trusted to tell the unvarnished truth. And how ironic, this delegation made up of Pharisees were not marked by the truth. They're colluding with the Herodians, notorious compromisers who had sold their souls to Rome. How foolish. They just said that Jesus couldn't be swayed by appearances and they are presenting themselves with a false appearance of humility and praising Jesus. This can't go well for them. Not with Jesus. Not with Jesus who can read hearts. And so we move, follow with me, from the detailed plan, verse 13, and the deceptive pandering, verse 14a, now, number 3, to the double ploy. Verse 14b through verse 16. And I call it a double ploy because first there is a ploy of the delegation by the question they ask, but then Jesus turns it on them. And there is a ploy of Jesus that he makes to them. He's the one that traps them. It's a double ploy. First, notice with me the ploy of the delegation. The rest of verse 14. Here's the questions. Is it lawful, they ask him, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then a follow-up question. Should we pay them or should we not? Now that's a loaded question. And notice how they ask it. They want a simple yes or no. Because if he gives a simple yes or no, they can twist what he meant behind it. Because what he meant behind it wasn't explained. So they just want a simple yes or no. That's how they present it. This, of course, was a loaded question. A very tall order. Because it was asking Jesus to settle the most, the most disputed issue of the day. Mark that. The most controversial issue of the whole day was much like the issue of our own day in the church. Does Caesar have authority over God's people? On the one hand, what nation, like Israel, would not be resentful to an occupying power that taxed them? I mean, the Jews certainly resented Rome. The tax was a constant reminder that they were in subjection to Rome. However, on the other hand, Rome was also sensitive to this question. In fact, that word taxes, there in verse 14, you can't see it in the English, but it comes from um, the Greek word kainsos, which is really a transliteration of the Latin word census, kainsos, or census. Rome taxed everything, crops, imports, exports, land, transportation, but this is the Cainsas tax. This is the census tax. You know what that was? It was a tax for breathing. It was a tax for existing. The Jews resented this. Why? Because God is the creator of all of life, right? God put air into our lungs. In fact, this census or poll tax, as it was called, which is what the question is related to, the Jews said was a violation of the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before you. They said that the taxes were immoral. And to add fuel to the fire, in AD 6, after the poll tax was instituted by Quirinius, a Roman governor, under the orders of Caesar, there was a man named Judas, who, like Jesus, was from Galilee, but unlike Jesus, started a revolt against Rome. What was his issue? The issue was the poll tax. 
We shouldn't have to pay the poll tax. God created us, Judas said. And Rome got very uncomfortable anytime anyone raised the question about taxes because what had just happened in AD 6, they're not that far from it. The revolt under Judas, they squelched that revolt. Judas was killed. And they were still depositing into the imperial treasury a denarius from each Jew year after year after year. A denarius was wages for one day's work. And to pay that once a year wasn't that big of a deal. But the point was a point of principle, right? Because every time they looked at that coin and every time they heard it cling in the imperial treasury, they were reminded that they were in subjection to Rome, a foreign oppressor. The poll tax was viewed by Jews as Rome's ownership of them, and they argued we belong to God. So when they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Understand this is part of their plan and it is a ploy. It's in place to trap Jesus because if Jesus says it's lawful to pay taxes, then the people will turn against him, especially those who viewed him as the Messiah. Because the Messiah is supposed to be a deliverer, right? A Messiah, or the Messiah, is supposed to be one that delivers them from Rome and thus delivers them from paying taxes to Rome. So if Jesus says it's lawful to pay the taxes, they, they're going to think to themselves, well, this can't be the Messiah. The crowds will be turned against him. But if Jesus says the people should not pay taxes, well, then the religious leaders would tattle to the Romans by way of the Herodians that they're now buddies with and saying that Jesus was affirming political insurrection. He was just like Judas. And oh, by the way, he's from Galilee too. A very good setup. A very good trap. I just want to say this on a side note. The ploy didn't work. And it didn't work because Jesus did not feel intimidated to give a simple yes or no answer. We need to be careful not to always give simple yes and no answers and not to always demand simple yes and no answers. There are many and great complex issues that require deep thought and a mind that God has given us and you are under no obligation to give simple yes and no answers. Because I'll tell you this, simple yes and no answers that are required are usually asked with bad motives as a trap. Jesus saw through this. They're pandering to him. So this ploy of the delegation becomes a double ploy because now we see the ploy of Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. Jesus is now going to be the questioner. Notice your Bibles. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought it to him and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? He said to him, Caesar's. He asked them these questions because as Mark says in verse 15, he was aware of their hypocrisy, knowing their hypocrisy. The master sees through their manipulation, right? John 2.25 says he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In Matthew's parallel account, it says that he perceived their malice. 
Luke's account that he perceived their craftiness. He knew their tricks. He could see their hearts. He knew they were hypocrites. This wasn't a genuine question. It was a trap question, right? Trap question. So Jesus asked them two questions. One in verse 15, one in verse 16. Notice your Bibles. Verse 15, the question, first, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? And the second question, verse 16, he holds up the coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, the first question, Matthew says he was a little bit more direct. He said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? It was very direct. He told him he knew their motives. You're not after the truth. You are out to test me. Perizete is the Greek word. Interestingly, same word used in chapter 1, verse 13, to describe the temptation of Satan toward Jesus in the wilderness. This is satanic forces. In the flesh of the Pharisees and the Herodians, a satanic attack. And so Jesus points that out. I know what you're doing. Why put me to the test? And now it comes, the second question. Verse 16. Whose likeness and inscription is this? That's the second question. He's talking about the coin, right? Because the end of verse 15 says, after he says, why put me to the test? He says, bring me a denarius. That was the coin that paid the tax and let me look at it. This is for dramatic effect. Jesus knew what was on the coin. Everyone knew who was on the coin. As a matter of fact, Jesus was a carpenter. He was a businessman. He would have been very familiar with the denarius and would have exchanged the denarius. He knew who was on it. Everyone knew who was on it. The point is that he didn't know or that others didn't know. The point is everybody knew. And for dramatic effect, bring me the denarius. Why? Because he's drawing attention to both the likeness or the image on the coin as well as the inscription. But the Pharisees and Herodians thought surely once Caesar's image is pointed out once we answer his question whose likeness and inscription is this and we answer it notice verse 16 they said to him Caesar's once that happens surely Jesus will say don't pay the tax this also shows their hypocrisy because Jesus says to them, bring me a denarius. I love that. Because the Pharisees were the very ones who said it was sinful to carry a denarius with you. Because it was a miniature idol with Caesar's image. So Jesus says, uh, you hypocrites, do you have a denarius? They had one. They found one. They're in cahoots with the Herodians, willing to seek out a coin they view as idolatrous. Jesus didn't view it that way. They viewed it that way. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. He baits them with a coin and they fall right into the trap because the coin was the key to the whole discussion, both the likeness on the coin and the inscription. What was the likeness? As I said, it was Caesar. It was an image on the front side of a bust of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription abbreviated in Latin. Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Phileas Augustus. Translated, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son 
of divine Augustine. The inscription, along with the image, was a claim by Tiberius Augustus that he was the son of God. And even worse, on the reverse side, he's seated on a throne wearing a diadem, clothed in priestly garments, and the inscription says, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. So understand this. That coin was Caesar's way of saying, I am not only in political authority over you, I am in spiritual authority over you. I will tell you how to worship, when to worship, where to worship. I'm the one that built the temple. This is Herod's temple. I am the high priest, Caesar, Augustus, the son of God. The coin was an unavoidable claim of political and spiritual authority by Caesar and also by Herod, who worked for Caesar. And it was this coin that Judas had earlier claimed was treason against God. So imagine the drama, the anticipation of the Pharisees and Herodians scurrying about to find a coin and then have Jesus point out the idolatrous picture on it, the message on it. Surely they thought Jesus was going to hold this coin up once they answered at Caesar's image. He's claiming to be God that Jesus would cast the coin aside, walk away, and say, don't pay the tax. But that is not what Jesus did. They thought he was going to do that because then they could paint him out to be a political insurrectionist, thereby having ammunition to have him arrested. And Jesus turns their ploy against them. And that now takes us to the final thing. Christians should not be intimidated by either religious or political authority. Jesus wasn't. We see that in the detailed plan, the deceptive pandering, the double ploy, number four, verse 17, the divine principle. There is a divine principle here regarding God's authority over Caesar. This is about far more than just paying taxes. Jesus used the occasion of them asking a question about taxes to make a larger theological point that God is over Caesar. Notice verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Not quite the answer they were expecting, right? Because they were expecting a simple yes and no. Now Jesus has made two statements that they're actually going to have to think about. On the one hand, Jesus' statement could not be construed legitimately as political insurrection because he clearly says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, right? But on the other hand, he certainly is not promoting idolatry or saying that Caesar has ultimate authority because he quickly adds, and to God, the things that are God's. Jesus is not evading the question. He is providing a divine principle, true, listen to this, for all points in human history regarding God's authority and Caesar's authority. The emperor in this case and the civil magistrate in general must receive what is due him, Jesus says, but he must not receive beyond what is due him. Notice the first part of the statement more carefully. Render to Caesar, Jesus says, the things that are Caesar's. 
He's talking about paying taxes, right? Because that is what brought up the discussion. But it's a general statement. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The word render means to pay something to someone that is owed them. Jesus is saying, you owe Caesar your taxers. You are to render to him what belongs to him. Jesus is saying, this is Caesar's coin. His picture is on it. He owns this coin. You need to pay the tax. But Caesar is not ultimately God's representative. God put him on the throne by sovereign decree. And therefore, there is a higher responsibility to God. So while you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, make sure above that you render to God, Jesus says, the things that are God's. What is Jesus doing? He's simply acknowledging the legitimate authority of government as instituted by God. But he's saying that such government, even that of a powerful emperor who thinks he is God, is not God and is not independent of God. That government is put there by God. God is sovereign over all human affairs and God is sovereign over political affairs. We have a duty, Jesus is saying, as citizens to Caesar, but such a duty to Caesar does not surpass our duty to God. Now, Paul picks up on this in Romans 13, and I want you to turn over to Romans 13. I know you're familiar with it, but Paul told Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, and we need reminded of this. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. In other words, God has put him there for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this... You also pay taxes. Paul clearly has the words of Christ on his mind here. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul takes the principle regarding taxes that Jesus teaches and he fleshes it out. And he says, yes, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue. But also respect to whom respect and honor whom honor is owed. It's a general principle Jesus is teaching is what Paul is saying. And Paul is also saying the general principle Jesus is teaching when he says also render to God the things that are God's is exactly what the end of verse 1 says. For there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. In other words, there are certain people God has put in places of governing authority. There are two spheres of authority, the church and the state. Caesar has his authority, the church has hers. But the state's authority is not entirely separate because God is the one that instituted that authority to begin with. What does the sphere of the church do? The sphere of the church proclaims the gospel and administers the sacrament. What does the state do? Well, as defined by Paul in Romans 13, we just read it. The state executes justice in the land. The state defends with the sword outright or would-be enemies. 
in order to keep civil peace, in order to secure temporal freedom and even religious freedom. Caesar has his sphere or his lane, but God has posted warnings in his lane. There is a limit to the authority of Caesar. He cannot go 100 miles an hour running over the church. His authority has been given to him by God. But Paul says that authority is there. And it does involve paying taxes. By the way, Peter also spoke about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter said, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, because he's the one that put that authority there. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And of course, Paul would go beyond just saying, pay your taxes, as he does in Romans 13. He would also say we need to pray for those who are in authority. 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. A little lesser known verse, Titus 3.1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So the Bible is clear. Jesus lays out the principle. The Bible fleshes it out in other places. The state is a legitimate authority and has legitimate claims on our behaviors, including paying taxes, but the state's authority is under God's authority. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but... To God the things that are God's. And that's really what we need to highlight this morning. Because while Jesus affirms that we are to pay our taxes, and Paul would affirm even honoring and respecting political authorities, even emperors, Jesus, by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, is also rejecting Caesar's claim to be God. God alone is the final authority. You understand, he is putting the religious leaders in their place. He is putting anyone in their place that doesn't want to pay their taxes, and he's putting Caesar in his place. Why? Because Jesus is an authority over the people and the religious leaders, and Jesus is an authority over Caesar. God is the final authority. In fact, back uh, in Mark chapter 12, if you just turn back to our text, the same word that is used there in verse 16, the word likeness, whose likeness, it's the word for image, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. That word is the same word used in the Greek Septuagint in Genesis 1.26, which describes the fact that we were created in the likeness or the image of God. I believe very firmly that by Jesus holding that coin up and asking the question, whose image, whose likeness is on this, and by them answering it, Jesus is really saying, you know, this coin may be impressed with the image of Caesar, 
but all of humanity has been impressed with the image of God. Caesar may own the coin. You might be in his kingdom. All right, fine, pay him the tax, but God's image is on you. You belong to God. Your whole life is to be lived to God's glory. As Jesus said later in this passage, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God has supreme authority over our lives. And it's not just the lives of Christians because James 2.1 says He's the Lord of glory. And Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, So what? Caesar has a coin with his image. Pay him the tax. You owe it to him. Because God placed him there. You're not committing idolatry by doing that. Don't read into this. God put him on the throne. Do you realize, Israel, that you're in subjection to Rome because I'm punishing you? I make the calls. Pay the tax. But all of humanity has God's image on them, including Caesar. And therefore, Caesar belongs to God. And Caesar must submit to God. There is one authority. Flip with me over to John chapter 5 just for a moment. I've alluded to this passage over and over, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. And if there is any civil magistrate or governor or president or political official that might hear or see this message, I want them to read John 5. What does Jesus say, verse 27? He, that is God, the Father, has given me authority to execute judgment because, Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. Authority to execute judgment is given to the Son. He is the final authority. He will judge all pretender kings who try to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ. In verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They will all come out. There'll be the great resurrection and the judgment day. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Caesar will be judged. Let God handle that. Pay him the tax. Pay him the tax. Submit to him. Honor him. God will take care of him. Trust in the Lord. I read one time of a conscience stricken taxpayer and he wrote a letter to the IRS except the title of the letter said IRS Infernal Revenue Service because you burn all the money you waste it letter said this, Dear Sir, my conscience is bothered. Here is the money I owe in back taxes. P.S. If my conscience bothers me further, I'll send the rest of the money later. Jesus says it's just a tax. Where is your home? Your true home is eternity. You have the Father who has given you all things. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Pay the tax. Caesar owns the coin. But here's the bigger issue. Render the things of Caesar that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's.
this is a slap on the wrist to the religious leaders and to Caesar. Caesar belongs to God. And how do I know that? Well, notice the end of verse 17 of Mark 12. The end of verse 17, I've got to turn back there. What does Mark say? He says, and they marveled at him. You could say the they is the people. That's probably true, but I think the antecedent, the they is the same they in verse 13. That's the Sanhedrin. And the representatives of the Sanhedrin, who are the Pharisees and the Herodians, they marveled. Luke says they were made silent. They were rendered silent. I mean, they didn't even know what to say. How do you respond to that? That's not a yes or no. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveled at his answer and became silent. That's how Luke records it. The word marveled is the intensive form of the Greek word themazo. They were struck out of their senses, astonished. Because Jesus put them in their place by trapping them. He put Caesar in his place as well. Petty taxes rendered to Caesar are important, but not compared to our responsibility to the one and only eternal God. Caesar may have owed to him the denarius, but we owe our lives to God. And this wasn't just a one-time thing where Jesus said bold things to people of the political world. Remember, he said to Pilate, Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That was after he was arrested. What would happen? The Pharisees, the Herodians, they leave defeated. Matthew twenty-two twenty-two says, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. They got out of there. And as they were walking away, they said to themselves, what should we do? We need to have a backup plan. Well, that backup plan is provided by Luke. He tells us in chapter 23, the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. He misled our nation. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. He's a political insurrectionist. In other words, they couldn't pin him with his own words, so they just made up what he said. Jesus never said to rebel against Rome. This is the divine principle. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. Now, how do we apply this today? First of all, you and I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility, as 1 Timothy 2 says, to pray for our civil magistrates. Sometimes imprecatory prayers are okay. Sometimes prayers of prosperity. But always prayers focused on the authority 
of King Jesus. You never know what might happen. What happened with King Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel 4, I read it to you. This is the Lord Most High. This is the Lord Most High. I have sinned. Repentance. We have a responsibility to pray for civil magistrates. That's part of what we learn from this divine principle. Secondly, we have a responsibility to maintain a good testimony. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a reference to a wax seal on a letter pressed with a, with a signet ring bearing the image of the one that presses it. We, we all bear the image of God, all of humanity, but as Christians, we bear the image specifically of Christ because Romans 8 is clear that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Titus 3.1 says, Be ready to do every good work as you submit to the governing authorities. Jesus paid his own taxes and he helped Peter pay his. Peter pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth. God has pressed his image into us. Jesus has his image pressed into us by the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can press the image and the rule of Christ on society. And the only way we impress the image and rule of Christ on society is by maintaining a good testimony. Most of us aren't in the political world. The best thing that you can do is submit to King Jesus for all the world to see. So that your light might shine before men. Does that sound familiar? That they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. So we have responsibility to pray for civil magistrates. To have a good testimony. We also have a responsibility to disobey civil magistrates. When the government commands something contrary to God's law or forbids something commanded by God's law, we must disobey. And that, that's what Peter and the rest of the apostles said. We must obey God rather than men when confronted by the religious authorities of Israel. We have a responsibility to disobey at times. We also have a responsibility to vote morally. According to God's law, you know, the Tenth Commandment forbids covetousness, but the U.S. government has legislation and policies that take from one group and give to another group that they call victims. We violate the Tenth Commandment every time we vote in a way that violates covetousness promoting lust, greed. We violate morally our conscience when we vote for immoral people Immoral legislation regarding women's so-called rights, abortion, laws confusing genders, laws confusing what marriage is. Our ballots are like bullets that have killed this country. And we have invited God's judgment on it. God has given to us what we've asked for by our voting. We have a responsibility. Have a good testimony. Pray for those in leadership sometimes disobey them and we have a responsibility to vote the right way. Second, we're called to be resourceful. Not only do we have a responsibility, but we are called to be resourceful. Think about this for a moment. The civil authorities that God institutes are a demonstration of His common grace. For example, the Roman military, which was supported by taxes, maintained empire-wide peace. Roman road provided the opportunity for transportation, the shipping lanes, 
network for exports and imports to enjoy a good life. This is a result of God's common grace. We aren't to despise those things. And in fact, listen to this. Paul used his Roman citizenship as a resource to draw upon to avoid persecution. He wasn't a masochist. He was willing to suffer when the time came, but he didn't ask for it. He took advantage of his Roman citizenship to avoid undue persecution. Why? He made it clear, so that I can preach the gospel louder and bolder. And that he did. Christians today shouldn't desire persecution, or at least I don't. Throughout history, Christians have sought to avoid it not by being cowards, they faced it when they had to, but they sought the resources afforded to them. There, I have tomes of literature of preachers who preached messages to political officials. And that takes me to my third point. Responsibility, resourcefulness, and reverence. We are called upon by God in Scripture to rebuke civil authorities and to tell them they must revere Christ. They must have legislation that honors him if they want him to honor them. They must pass laws that give at least lip service to the word of God. Because right now they're outright hating God, hating his laws, turning his laws upside down. We need to call upon civil magistrates to revere the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final king. There is nothing, mark my words, nothing in Scripture that suggests there's the sphere of the authority of the state over here, the sphere of the authority of God over here, and the two have no relationship whatsoever. And whatever the state says, well, I guess the church has to do it to maintain a good testimony. No. There are two spheres but there's one king. And Psalm 29 makes no caveats. Listen to it. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the, the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. That is our responsibility. Jesus is giving here a, a very simple divine principle that says when you render to, the, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you need to make sure you render to God the things that are God's. His authority and power are unequaled. For He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
marching orders to go into the world and boldly proclaim the gospel. Without the fear of man, just like Jesus, not being swayed by man's appearance and man's opinion, but preaching and teaching the unvarnished truth of the living word of God and never apologizing for that. To him be the glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, the words of our Lord. See the wisdom of our Lord on full display. Able to rebuke the religious leaders of Israel, able to rebuke even Caesar himself. Lord, this encourages us because Jesus spoke with the roar of a lion in no uncertain terms regarding his authority. Help us, Lord, to be those who render to him the authority that belongs to him. We pray and ask all of these things in his blessed and holy name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.